This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Let's um, pray. Father, we ask that you will um, again help us, that you would give us grace. You'd look upon our weaknesses. Lord, you'd look upon um, our dishonesty uh, and the excuses that we make. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to face the truth uh, and the grace, Lord, to overcome those things that hinder our growth in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. I'm reminded of a friend of mine once who wrote a book. And uh, the name of the book was The Truth Will Set You Free. And then the subtitle was But First It Will Make You Miserable. <clears throat> so um, I'd like to just um, continue where we were last week, last week and the week before, uh, we were in Luke 6, Luke 5, uh, basically working through um, the call of Peter. Uh, Jesus calls Peter on the shores near Capernaum. We're also looking, we're looking at, it was two weeks ago, last week we were looking at um, the... Um, Connection. Uh, we're really looking at um, Jesus uh, and his Sermon on the Mount, as recorded by Luke, and uh, both of those tied together. And I think, of course, it will tie together with what we're uh, going to speak about today. But the themes that uh, during the last two weeks that kept reoccurring uh, and repeating themselves really are, I suppose, three themes. Uh, include uh, the nature and the character of God, who is God, and what is his character like. And that we talked about uh, two weeks ago as being holy, God is holy, what is holiness? Um, And of course, in connection with the call of Peter, um, Peter on the shores of the the Sea of Galilee tells the Lord, you know, uh, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Uh, which reminded us a little bit of Isaiah's response when he met, uh, encountered God's holiness. And uh, what we talked about uh, two weeks ago was basically that um, where, how does one uh, come into a place of holiness? Um, because it can be very abstract and not very tangible. And uh, one of the things that we did mention is that certainly all teaching has to be practical, right? Even the teachings of Jesus. And sometimes we look at these words of Jesus and we say, well, we just can't do them. They're not feasible. Maybe he was talking about some golden ideal that uh, we should maybe aim for or strive for towards, yet uh, it's not anything we'll achieve in our lifetime. And maybe when we get to heaven or, or when there's another dispensation, we'll be able to live out the teachings of Jesus. Um, but it has to be practical. And uh, what we said was that holiness that uh, is achieved by being a disciple of Jesus, following him and putting his teaching uh, into practice. Last week, we talked about um, 
or we began the Sermon on the Mount as recorded by Luke, we asked ourselves, what does it mean to be blessed? Uh, what, is it, what are the woes that Jesus uh, talks about uh, in the passage just before the one that we read this morning? And I'd just like to remind you, because we'll, we'll touch on this in just a few minutes, that to be blessed is not to be, uh, it's not some saccharine form of being happy, you know, um, in fact, what we think of being happy uh, doesn't really adequately define what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the poor or blessed are those who mourn. To be blessed is to be unburdened, to be unburdened, to be satisfied, to be at peace. Uh, and Jesus, of course, goes on to give some woes. And uh, woes, he, the, the warning uh, that he's giving, because when you say oi in Hebrew, it's like, you know, watch out. There's something dangerous ahead. There's an abyss, you know, that you're about to fall into. And the warning that Jesus gives is, are to those who are self-satisfied, or those who are somehow complete in themselves, who don't... Uh, need God's mercy or God's provision or God's forgiveness. And uh, that blessedness really is what it means to have, uh, to have life. And I started thinking about that, especially in light of the fact that one of our employees asked me this week, have you ever read uh, Mere Christianity? Well, of course, everybody's read Mere Christianity. And uh, one of the things that kind of sparked uh, in connection with the words that we, we just read this morning, is that in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis is not just an apologist, uh, but he's actually a theologian. He's not a professional theologian. He comes, in a way, from the outside, which is fresh, uh, in a way, um, and he doesn't always use the language of uh, theologians, language that can sometimes be thick and not easy to understand. And one of his big <clears throat> themes in, in mere Christianity is he talks about life, okay? I don't know if you folks remember this. <clears throat> and he says there's two kinds of life. He says there's biological life, yes, right? A life that we all have. And he says that biological life uh, looks inward. That biological life, uh, the, you might say that the, the nature of biological life is, is in some way to preserve ourselves, all right, to satisfy ourselves, to satiate ourselves, to provide for ourselves. And then he talks about divine life or spiritual life, yes? And spiritual life, he uses, of course, the Greek zoe. Um, and this life is different. This is the life that God gives. Um, God, of course, gives biological life, and biological life is precious. But there's a, there's a higher form of life, at least what we understand in the New Testament. And that divine life, okay, which is the life of God, right? It's a life of, that comes from being in union with God. In fact, that's how Lewis understands salvation. The salvation, which is a very mature and even a historic way of understanding what it means to be saved. To be saved 
is not just to have our sins forgiven. We in the Protestant world make salvation too cheap. Not that we don't make it, not just it's too easy, okay? It's too cheap. You want to get your sins forgiven? You want to go to heaven? Okay, then you're saved. But Lewis understands, like the New Testament, and so many uh, great Christian leaders throughout the century or Christian thinkers or or Christian theologians, saints, that uh, being saved is more than just having fire insurance, okay? Being spared from the the fires of you know where, you know. Um, That being saved is actually being in union with God through Jesus the Messiah, right? And in the process of being in that union, one is transformed, one is changing. Uh, And that's Lewis's understanding of divine life. It's a good understanding, it's a classic, it's Christian understanding, it's not unique to him necessarily, but uh, many of you know uh, his work, and it's a good reference point for all of us. And divine life, as Lewis says, does he not, is divine life gives out, right? Divine life doesn't try to necessarily preserve itself, but divine life gives and gives and gives. It looks outward. It doesn't look inward. And that's what it, and for Lewis in part, what it means to have this divine life. And I was thinking about these words of Jesus, uh, very challenging words of Jesus. And as I understand them, these are words of life, okay? These are not words of death. I mean, our biological life, in our biological life, we're dying. We're under the curse of death. With uh, divine life, divine life, another way of saying divine life is to use John's, the, 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 um, the term that we find in John's gospel and the epistles of John. Divine life is eternal life. And eternal life, again, is not something that just happens to us when we go to heaven. Eternal life is something that can and should begin here now and continue on after we die, okay? Divine life is to share in the life of God, and actually it's even more, to be more precise, it's to share in the life of the Trinity, to share in the the love that the Father has for the Son, the Spirit has for the Son, the Son has for the Father, and more. That is divine life. But how do we get divine life? But again, Jesus said, my words are spirit and life. My words are spirit and life. And Jesus, at the beginning of this chapter, talks about being, well, just a little few verses before, talks about being blessed, being blessed, sorry. Uh, What does all this mean? And actually, how do we apply these words? Because on the surface, these words can be great moral teaching. Someone like uh, Tolstoy, you know, would talk about the Sermon on the Mount as being, you know, something that all people should practice. And if we all could live, live this stuff out, the world would certainly be a better place. And that's true. I don't want to minimize that. But actually what Jesus is offering here is something much bigger than just moral teaching. Okay? 
Again, moral teaching and ethical teaching, uh, even if non-believers want to live by this, certainly won't hurt the world, certainly won't hurt society. But what Jesus wants, or what Jesus is pointing to, again, uh, is something big. Now, we could get really caught up, could we not? We could get really caught up in, now, should we take this literally? Or how do we interpret this? These are good questions. Should I really give 20 pounds or $20 to the heroin addict standing outside the tube station or the train station of my town? Is that what it means to give or to lend? And that heroin addict goes and, you know, uses the money for drugs. Should I really enable somebody who refuses to work? These are not easy questions. And I don't pretend, we're not going to pretend to solve them, you know, right, stand, you know, right here and now. But there are two issues that I'd like to tease out <coughs> for a moment, okay? And one is the issue of, well, actually, there are three challenges, I think. I mean, after all, you have to have a three-point sermon. I mean, or something's wrong with you. And I don't want anything to be wrong with me. And we do have, um, as it's well known by now, six and a half listeners to the podcast. And uh, they, they will be disappointed. Uh, they, I think they're all from Ohio, but anyway. <laughs> that says a lot about Ohio, doesn't it? Well, if you don't know about Ohio. First, uh, from Luke 6, 27. Uh, but I tell you, who hear me, or I tell you, those who hear me. What I like about this is the first challenge, really, to finding uh, life uh, and find coming into divine life by listening to the words of Jesus and putting them into practice. The first challenge is, are we listening? Who studies the words of Jesus? Who mulls over them? Who meditates on them? Or do we just say, oh, it's all very confusing. I'll uh, read the epistles, you know. Or, um, you know, I'll just read maybe John's gospel, okay? I don't get this Jesus stuff. And so often than not, we really don't pay attention to his life and to his words and to his teaching, and we don't know it very well. Now, I'm not trying to set Jesus up against the epistles. That's sometimes done in the, in, amongst the cool Christianity set, you know, the cool Christians, you know, where I'm going, <coughs> I can't listen to Paul, uh, you know, and all the other new, but I'll, I'll kind of, you know, listen to Jesus and somehow put Jesus over, over the rest of the scripture. We can't do that because of the writings of the apostles that come after the Gospels are in, help us to interpret and live out in a practical way the teachings of Jesus. So I'm not suggesting we elevate one over the other. But very often, we don't know Jesus. We don't know his words. Again, we don't know his life. Yes, we're not guided by those words. We don't let the Spirit apply those words to us and the situations which we find ourselves. 
So the first, and we did mention this <coughs> a few weeks ago, but the nice thing about sermons is that everybody forgets them uh, round about just after they start drinking coffee when the service is over. You will remember the jokes, of course, <coughs> like the joke about Ohio. Um, but we do have to listen. You know, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. And I do like the Mennonite tradition or even the, the, the Russian Orthodox tradition where oftentimes people carry around little gospels and they're constantly reading these and thinking about them and asking. And it's not always easy to answer, how can we apply this? How should we apply this? What does this mean for our lives? And secondly, I'd like to read you the, the end verse here. The end verse is, uh, which I think is kind of key to the whole Sermon on the Mount, as appears in Luke, and the Sermon on the Mount as it appears in Matthew. Because the end, the end of our, oh no, it wasn't quite the end, almost the end. It should have been the end. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Be merciful. Basically, Jesus is telling us, hey, be like God. Be like God. He tells us in Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that in itself is a huge challenge because most of us are going to say, no, I can't do that. So it doesn't really apply to me. Okay? I can't, I certainly can't do that. But actually, what Jesus teaches us, yes, what Jesus teaches us is basically, I want you to behave and act just as God behaves. And so consequently, all of the teaching of Jesus is based on this principle of the imitation of God. Yes, okay, you want to sum it up? You want a bumper sticker? You want a mission statement? You, you want a, a tagline, whatever you want to call it, yes? Jesus asks us to be forgiving. Why does Jesus want us to forgive? I mean, it is good for us, for sure, to be for, not to hold grudges and to hate people. Why does Jesus ask us to be generous? Why does Jesus ask us to love? Why does Jesus, you know, ask us uh, to be merciful? Because God is like that, is he not? Is not God generous to us? Does not, is not God merciful to us? Does not God forgive us over and over and over again? Yes? Does not God love his enemies? Jesus wants us, <coughs> in a sense, and there's more to it that we'll explain in a moment. Jesus wants us to imitate God. Jesus wants us to do as God has, do as God does. And in that way, okay, we can be holy. Be holy as I am holy. And that's actually how Jewish people in the time of Jesus understood the outworking of that verse. Six times it says in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. So how do we do that? We walk around and refrain from playing cards or not going to the dance 
We're not going to the, the, the uh, bingo game, right, at the uh, local church. What makes us holy in the end? What makes us holy? And people understood. Jesus understood as well. The great sages at the time of Jesus understood that to be holy is to do what God does. And if we can do what God does, be merciful, be forgiving, be generous, that brings us into a place of holiness. What's the benefit of holiness? The benefit of holiness is that we come into an intimate relationship with God and ultimately, holiness brings us transformation, okay? And so Jesus, in order to make this maybe easier for us, okay, says, I want you to imitate God. But after we get to the, after the resurrection and we come to the place of the epistles, what did the writers of the epistles say? I want you to, we want you to imitate Jesus who's imitating God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Have this mind in you that was in, you know, that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled, took the form of a servant and humbled himself. And if you read through the epistles, you know, and virtually in every chapter, it will say, let's model our behavior on how Jesus imitated God. So it's very practical. We look at Jesus, we're his disciple, we follow him, yes. We do as he does uh, as a way of imitating God. And sometimes that's difficult. That's a little fuzzy. That's a little, is it not, a little abstract. And so Paul will say twice in the book of Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. So having mentors or being, uh, being in, uh, you might say, living the life of a disciple okay, is uh, imitating someone who is imitating Jesus or who has come to a place of maturity where they can imitate Jesus. By the way, discipleship is not a program. It's not a book, okay? It's not a checklist, you know, you to get up in the morning, quiet time, you know. By noon, got a witness to two people, check. You know, lunchtime, got to say the blessing over the meal, check. Evening, got to go to the Bible study, you know, check, okay? All those things are good. All those things are good. But discipleship begins with a relationship. And that relationship is with Jesus. We're studying, we're imitating, we're watching him. And Jesus can provide for us, okay, parents, elders, teachers, and we can do the same. But in order to imitate their life, in order to copy them, in order to learn from them, we have to do it up close and in a relationship. So first and foremost, discipleship is a relationship. Now, here are two other little challenges to all this. First, we have to listen. That's a challenge to kind of stop doing what we're doing and take time to study to listen, right, to reflect, okay, uh, who Jesus is and what he asks us to do and how we can implement that teaching. But then here's another issue. The issue is, do we really believe all this? 
You know, where, where is our center? Is it, are we living biologically? How can I lend? How can I give and keep giving? Like, who's going to look after me? Yes? Uh, how can I be merciful? Because if I'm merciful, there might not be any justice. And after all, I need some justice. And so I think first and foremost, to live out the words of Jesus in order to come into this place of life, there certainly has to be, we have to have faith. We have to have trust. We have to believe in an alternative reality, yes? And the alternative reality is that God's way of doing things and that God's economy actually brings blessing and brings life. And it's a re- it is a reflection of who God is, that somehow he doesn't suffer from shortage, okay? That, uh, that by giving, somehow we're not going to lack, okay? Most of us have this fear that there's not enough for all of us. Is it true? You know, and I have to get my share of the pie. I have to scrape and scrap and fight and elbow and make sure that someone else doesn't get what I deserve. My dear friends, that is indeed biological life. That's the world system in which we live. But I'm always reminded of Paul's words that the the world that we don't see is more real than this world that we exist in or that we live in. And that God's economy and that life in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is a realm where God is king and we submit ourselves to that. It has a different kind of economy. It also means that we can be merciful. We should be able to be merciful. And in the process of being merciful, yes, God will be merciful to us. By the way, the reason we had the first reading is that it's very significant. Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. What is glory? It's a tangible, visible form of holiness. Moses says, I want to see your essence because more than anything, God God is holy. And God says, yeah, I'm going to show you I'm going to show you my, my, I'm going to show you who I am. And what does God say? It's very, I think, important. Because this will repeat itself dozens of times throughout scripture. This verse, these verses will find, uh, they'll be uh, repeated in slightly different ways, but they'll be repeated. Um, The Lord says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And by the way, if you were here last week or the week before, one of the things we said about holiness is that holiness is goodness. Glory, holiness, goodness, they're synonymous. What makes God holy? Not only is that he's powerful and that he's mighty and that he's above all gods and that he creates and that he has no equal, but that God is also good, okay? That God's goodness is what makes him holy. And by the way, it's when we're good, quote unquote, it makes us holy. When we show mercy and generosity, as God shows mercy and generosity, 
That's holiness, okay? It says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, but you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And then down below we read, the, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate uh, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. And the Jewish interpreters uh, of this, uh, even starting in the Bible, uh, going into the days of Jesus said, what does it mean showing mercy to thousands? And they understood showing mercy to even a thousand generations, especially those generations that repent. Um, and then maintaining love to thousands and forgiving the wickedness, rebellious, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And by the time we get to further on in the Bible, uh, there is even God shows mercy to even those of the third and fourth generation. So what do we learn from this? Okay, what do we learn from this? That uh, God who is holy in his nature, right, is merciful. And that's why Jesus, at least the verse that we are looking at, be merciful, he says to us, as our heavenly father is merciful. If we can show mercy, we can show forgiveness. If we can show generosity, God will surely reward us. Maybe in this life, maybe in the life to come. But if we don't believe that, or we don't have that trust, or we don't have that reality, it's going to be hard to live by these words. These words which are spirit and life. Finally, I'd like to say one more thing about the words that were, is that um, we... Um, can't live these words out. It's very hard to live this teaching out only in the human flesh. I mean, we can make a good try at it. We can go quite far, perhaps. Um, but if we want to share, you might say, if we want to live out this teaching of Jesus, to know this divine life, this eternal life, these blessings to live uh, according in a way, according to the way God lives as a giver, a giver, a giver, a giver, someone who forgives, forgives, forgives. We know this from our personal lives, don't we? Um, then we will need the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and that help of that Holy Spirit, um, I'm reminded of the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, that uh, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit and live in a way that, that uh, pleases Him. But it's also, all right, it's very easy for us to say, yes, it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit. And we can call upon uh, the Lord who lives inside us to help us to overcome that biological life, to help us to overcome the flesh and death, uh, the, the devil. Uh, and indeed, 
we will receive divine assistance. We will receive grace. But my dear friends, I want to remind you of our last reading. In our last reading, which was, uh, sorry, our second reading, it, it was from Second Peter. It says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Okay? For life, for life and godliness. Right? And it's by being godly, is it not? It's by being Christ-like that we actually enter into this deeper relation. It's showing mercy, showing generosity, which is not only holiness, but also shows forth the glory of God through us. But then it goes on to say, through these, he has given uh, us very great and precious promises. We all, we know this verse, but what we don't often focus on, so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What's the invitation here? The invitation, again, is not just to be saved, quote-unquote, as we understand it as, as, um, in the Protestant world, but to participate in the divine nature. Okay? It doesn't mean, by the way, I'd hate to disappoint you, you're not going to become God, okay? And this has nothing to do with the new age. I have to say this for the podcast because there is one half person there in Ohio who gets a little rambunctious and upset, you know. We, we, the, the scripture surely rejects all of that kind of false teaching. But at the same time, it understands that we can become godly by imitating him, by imitating Jesus, by living the life of a disciple, by becoming, living in holiness. Uh, and that this process, I'd like to just point this out to you, begins first of all with faith. So least anyone say we're talking about works, okay? It says, um, it's, so it goes on to say from verse five, for this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith. Now, we have faith. How we've given faith is a gift. It's been given to us by God. We don't earn it. He's given us all a gift of faith. Some of us will say yes. Others will say no. And so we're not going to talk about earning, but we are going to talk about effort. So what should we add to our faith? And here we talk about... uh, a partnership, a partnership between us, our wills, our willingness to be willing, okay, and the Holy Spirit that comes to live inside of us. It's not all me, me, me doing it in my flesh, but it's the Holy Spirit who gives me, okay, the grace, again, to make an effort we're reading a Dallas Willard book, and, and in one of his books, he has a famous quote. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to works. It's opposed to earning something. We're not earning. This passage of scripture says, now that you've received these precious promises, now that we have the opportunity for divine life, okay, do the following. What? Participate, make the effort, okay, to 
add goodness, okay? Remember goodness and holiness? Okay, to add goodness uh, and knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, that's the second point. Second point, I don't know, is this still a three-point sermon? I don't know. I'm all confused. If you're confused, I don't blame you. Just think of those poor people in Ohio. It would be rugged for them. Um, the second point in all this, no, I don't know, what, uh, a sub-point, I don't know, something uh, in all of this is that to live this out not only takes an effort, but it's sometimes a slow process. It's sometimes a lifelong process. And it's not something that we achieve instantly. And I'm very suspicious of instant sanctification. Okay, sometimes God does a great work in us and we give up drugs and we give up smoking and we give up watching zombie movies on TV and stuff like that, okay? But other times, sanctification and imitation and ultimately transformation takes time. And it also takes discipline. It takes discipline. It requires us to exercise self-control. It requires us as at times to exercise self-denial. I know those two terms do not uh, fit very well in a Western world and in the context in which we live. The motto of almost every Western society, virtually, is don't be denied anything. But Jesus is saying deny, our, deny yourselves for something better. And it requires us, when we don't feel like it, to pray, or when, we don't, when our flesh says no, to forgive, or to be generous when we think, well, who's going to look after me or take care of me? How can I give up my Starbucks money? So again, the effort and cooperation with the Holy Spirit is worth it. My dear friends, you know, we are all dying. We are all dying. Our biological bodies, our bi the biological life in us is all slipping away. Some of us sooner than others, okay? We're sick. Death is a sickness. And the cure for that death is eternal life, okay? It's eternal life. Not just something that happens when we get to heaven, but something that should begin now. By listening to the words of Jesus, by uh, coming to a place where we can trust uh, in his teaching and in his message, and finally by being willing to make that effort so that uh, the, our God, the godliness, the holiness increases, perhaps slowly, but increases. This is, what it, uh, this is what it means, I believe, to be transformed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we um, again ask you to look upon our weakness and look upon our stubbornness and look upon our rebelliousness, look upon our blindness. And Lord, for those of us who are double-minded, for those of us who can't believe or don't want to trust, for those of us who are afraid to make the effort, who might be afraid of, uh, of uh, self-sacrifice or self-denial, Lord, we pray that uh, you'll give us not only grace, but you'll make us willing to be willing. 
Lord, make us willing to be willing. We ask that uh, you would overcome our fears, you would overcome this lack of faith. And we pray that all of us can wholeheartedly, uh, Lord, listen to you and apply your teaching and your words to our life. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.